Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin in all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them in the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like an owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, open our hearts so that we 
could say with some level of accuracy to the question whether we understand these things, that we too could say yes. Help us to learn treasures from your word, both old and new. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The title of today's message is Parables of the Unexpected Heavenly Kingdom. And our text is what you've just heard read, Matthew 13, verses 24 through 52. How would you describe the kingdom of heaven? What, what would you fill the blank in with? Fill in this blank. The kingdom of heaven is... And then give me something that describes the kingdom of heaven. Now, just do it in your own head right now. And assuming you hadn't just heard that parable read, maybe, or those parables read, maybe you might, what might you have described it like, you know, if somebody just caught you in the middle of the day and you weren't thinking about these parables. Maybe, maybe the kingdom of heaven is glorious. Maybe the kingdom of heaven is problem-free. Maybe the kingdom of heaven is filled with pure joy. And you'd have some biblical support for any of those answers. Jesus gives us six parables that begin with the kingdom of heaven is like. And the parables that follow are unexpected. Some of them, well, frankly, they don't sound too heavenly. The kingdom of heaven is like some rather unheavenly sounding things, you could say. Donald Craybill in his seminal book, The Upside Down Kingdom, writes... The kingdom of God announced by Jesus appeared odd and utterly upside down in the first century Palestinian culture. And the upside down surprises of God's kingdom continue to startle people as it breaks into diverse cultures today. In other words, after doing the work of understanding the parables in their culture, which were odd to their culture, their meaning will still seem odd to us. Uh, Just... Getting into the culture and understanding them in their original context won't solve that problem because they are indeed odd. On one level, these parables are easy to understand. On another, it's difficult to be satisfied with what they say. Frankly, we want it to be something else. We want it to be another way. So we're going to explore these parables um, of... uh, the unexpected under, I know you're expecting me to say three headings. I'm not. I'm not two headings, not four headings, but five headings. Five headings. Now, do not fear. Do not fear. Only number two has any real length to it. The rest of them are really rather short. So after we get through number two, you can say, wow, downhill from here. So um, got you covered there. Those headings are the uh, unheavenly until harvest, hidden and invisible, Hiddenness and harvest, happy abandon and harvest and a heap of fish. So, let's uh, begin again under the first heading, unheavenly until harvest. And read with me verses 24 and following afresh. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? 
Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow until, uh, together until harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now, last week, we looked at the parable of the sower, or what we called the parable of the foolish farmer, in the first half of the chapter. And that featured a poor farmer with not such great land, a lot of rocky soil, thorny soil, and so forth. In this parable, the, the sower has servants and enemies. He is evidently a wealthier landowner, but frankly, those are only the settings for, that, that give us the picture, which... Um, compares to the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting, Roman law, there actually was a Roman law that forbade people from sowing poisonous plants in a rival's field, which indicates that it was a real issue, that that they would go around ruining each other's farms by planting bad seed in their fields. The competition between Rival landholders led to feuds. So the the fact that an enemy sowed the weeds is not surprising, at least to them culturally. Now these weeds, as our English translations say, I I know we're not farmers, so this won't mean much to you, but it's actually darnel. Darnel is uh, a a rye grass that looks a lot like uh, wheat, especially when it first sprouts, uh, but it's inedible. It, it, it thorny and inedible, it's nasty. I mean, you, you, you wouldn't eat that stuff. It'd make you sick. Um, so by the time you recognize it, that you realize, oh, that's not wheat. It's too late because then the roots are tangled up in the roots of the wheat. So the question, you want, you want us to go pull it out? They, they now recognize, so it's gotten to the point that the roots are entangled, so his answer is uh, proper. No, 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 you're going to pull the wheat out if you do that as well. Now, the servants, the the servants basically begin by asking a question uh, that is essentially, sir, um, you weren't dumb enough to sow bad seed, were you? (laughs) Of course, respectfully, they put it a little more positively, but that's kind of what gets at the root of the question. And it's not uncommon for the servants of the Lord to question what he's doing in the world. Like, Lord, are you really, (laughs) like, what's going on here? But this Lord clears the matter up, pointing out that it was an enemy. Don't fear, however, the the servants have a solution. We'll just go pull them out. No, not a good move. Don't do that. They will, at that point, ruin the wheat as well. So when when is the problem going to be solved? The problem is going to be solved at harvest time. The, the, The darnel then will be used for fuel, which is its only value, And the wheat will be gathered into the barn. Now, pause the parable. Because Jesus pauses it. He goes on to tell two more parables. Then he gets back to explaining it. So, pause the parable. And that leads us to heading number two. Hidden and invisible. Verse 31, if you would read with me again. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field, though it is the smallest of all seeds, and yet it grows. Uh, when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He 
told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Making some bread. Now, nestled as these two parables are between the first parable and its explanation, um, it, it, it makes a parable sandwich, if you will, which means that they're to be eaten together, okay? You've, you've got these two parables sandwiched between the bread, which is the parable and the explanation of the parable, so uh, you eat the bread with the meat and the cheese. You don't just eat them separately. You don't start at the top and work your way down. You, you eat them together. To understand, see, the, the, the core theme of these two, I'll, I'll call them micro-parables, these mini-parables, they, they share a core theme of hiddenness. To understand the larger parable, the first one and its explanation, we must understand this core theme of hiddenness. Hiddenness goes with the other one. So let's look at those micro-parables, the mustard seed. This image of a kingdom as a tree is familiar to the original audience. Might not be familiar to you other than from this particular parable, the mustard seed that grows into a large tree parable. Apart from that, you might not be aware that it's something familiar. But when Jesus told it, he was not coming up with a new idea. It wasn't novel. A well-known example of this is found in Daniel chapter 4. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar tells his dream to Daniel. And in the description of the dream, he, he says, I, I, in, in chapter 4, verse 10, I, I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and it, its top touched the sky, the heavens. <coughs> it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all under it. The wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. Do you see a lot of connections to the parable Jesus told? It's a tree. It's large. The birds nest in its branches. Well, the tree in this case, in Daniel 4, is the empire of Babylon, which is so large that it touches the sky, the heavens. Now, when you read Babylon in the Bible, think Babel, because it's the same word, all the way back to the Tower of Babel. So that's where God confused the languages, because they were trying to build a tower that did what? Reach the sky, reach the heavens, right? Same word. And so that Babel had one that, in his dream, reached the heavens. Empires like Babylon, like that, become a place of shelter or protection for the people of that empire, the, the wild animals and the birds, even the little people of that empire, a, a, a source of provision for those people. Of course, it comes at a price. Now, Ezekiel, not just Daniel, but Ezekiel also compares kingdoms to trees. Israel, he compares to, through, really the Lord does, but through Ezekiel, uh, to a low-spreading vine that God will make a tall tree. So this kind of low, humble vine that looks to be like it'll never gain any height, God somehow forms it into a tree. So there's this, that picture. And then he, he also talks about Assyria and Egypt as trees as well. Assyria is compared to a tall, majestic cedar. And we read in, in, in 
Ezekiel 31, so it towered higher than all the trees of the field. Its boughs increased and its branches grew long, spreading because of abundant waters. All the birds of the sky nested in its boughs. All the animals of the wild gave birth under its branches. All the great nations lived in its shade. Again, note the similarities, some of the ideas that are borrowed in Jesus' parable that, are, that, that relate. They would have made, the original audience would have made, these connections. And the tree, again, represents a kingdom, a government. The bigger it became, the more it was sought as a source for sustenance by the animals, by the birds, living in its shade, its provision. In Ezekiel 17, so backing up a little bit, after uh, speaking of Egypt and Babylon and the lowly kingdom of the people of Judah, we read this, all the trees of the forest, all the kingdoms think, will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree, the, the, the proud kingdoms, and make the low tree, that would have been his people that were the, 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 the low trees, uh, make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and I make the dry tree flourish. The tall tree is, is the higher proud tree. The low tree is that lowly humble tree, which is God's kingdom. So Jesus is using very familiar language. To his first audience. The kingdom of heaven Jesus came to inaugurate. The, the messianic kingdom is like what? It's, well, it's like, it's like a tree. No, actually, it's, it's like a seed. Not an avocado seed. Those are big, as seeds go. Like a mustard seed. I mean, not just any seed is small enough. But a mustard, a proverbially small seed. Now, it's interesting because when Jesus' kingdom came as a seed, it was Jesus and his ministry. And most of us, as we look back on that, would not think of that as like, wow, that was incredibly small. We tend to think that was incredibly large, right? I mean, you think of Jesus' ministry. But we're looking at that backward through 2,000 years of history, and what we might miss is the reality that Jesus did most of what he did in the backwaters of Galilee, and he didn't catch the attention of Rome. Just to give you a perspective, he did not catch the attention of Rome until the week of his crucifixion, and that because he had been betrayed, and, 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 and it was the Jewish leaders who brought him with false accusations to the attention of Rome. He otherwise would not have been brought to their attention. Now, there is that time. Now, remember John the Baptist. He actually did have the attention of Rome. John the Baptist was one that they had key concerns about. And there was that time that after Herod kills John the Baptist, that the, he wondered when he heard something about Jesus that maybe it was John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's about it. He was not making a splash as splashes go. In the world of that time, he was healing, you know, blind people, lame people. In fact, one Roman authority later, after, after the, the birth of Christianity had begun, uh, referred to Jesus as, you know, not doing anything notable except maybe healing some blind people and raising a few dead people. I mean, <laughs> cleansing a few lepers. I mean, <laughs> but in their mind, that wasn't significant because those people don't matter. Jesus was not, by any outward measure, a threat to Rome. 
Jesus didn't do any of the empire-building things that people do. He was hardly a candidate for threatening the world's way of doing things, at least from their perspective. From a human perspective, he did not do great things for God. You know, you go off to youth retreats, and they get you, you know, gathered up at the end and, and, and motivated for Christ and tell you that you need to spend your life doing great things for God. But we, we leave those things often confused because how do you define great things for God? Are, are they mustard seed kind of things or are they cedar tree kind of things? He did loving things. He did unnoticed things. And whatever, whenever he did something that would bring him notice, he told them to keep it quiet. So what do you do with seeds? Well, you put them on display, right? No. You bury them. Code word, hide. When things are buried, you generally don't see them. The kingdom of heaven is like something really small that gets buried. It's not uncommon for Christian teachers to use this parable as a means. At least I've heard it. I've read it. Had people argue with me about things using it this way. <laughs> using this parable as a means for talking about how the church will grow and grow until eventually we rule the world. It's kind of the, you know, we may, may have started small, but we're going to end big. You ever kind of heard it used in that fashion? Yeah, handful of you. Well, there are three problems with understanding the parable that way. I'll just run through them quickly. One, first is, is that it, it, it only grows, this in the parable, this seed only grows to be the largest vegetable plant in the garden. I mean, to call it a tree was a stretch, okay? I mean, it, relatively speaking, it's, it's a tree. It's a, it's a mustard tree. It's, it's basically a really big bush, okay? It's not a cedar of Lebanon. It's, it's not a mighty oak. It's not a sequoia. Those are, wow. It's not one of those. It's a mustard tree. And... Remember, this seed, this kingdom comes down from heaven. It is not trying to reach heaven like Babel. It's coming down. It's not going up. It's lowly in its nature. That's the first problem. Secondly, the parable does not focus on the tree's growing or its visibility. Now, the NIV reads this way. It says, when it grows. That sounds present tense, but the original is better captured by the English Standard Version which says, when it has grown. In other words, the, the parable goes from a seed that's buried to a finished product in the end with no focus on the in-between. The growth is not really a discussion in the parable, other than the fact that when you get to the end, wow, it grew. <laughs> this thing that we didn't see, boop, there it is, it's big. It's important to note that, because it isn't about our growth. Second, or thirdly, and most importantly, my concern with that line of thinking that people bring about we're going to rule the world is that when we humans do kingdoms, uh, we can't resist doing them in worldly empire-building oppressive ways. 
we just can't help but doing it. And, and so we should be most careful of that kind of thinking. It runs contrary to the very message that Jesus is giving in Matthew's gospel and even in these parables. You see, most aren't really interested. Most that use that argument that I've interacted with, that I've read their books, they aren't really interested in Jesus running the world. They're quite interested in Jesus running the world through them or their group or in their way. You know, it's kind of like the wife who says to her husband, honey, I want you to lead. Just make sure you do it the way I want you to, you know. <laughs> it's, it's that kind of thing, right? course never had that with her but I did meet somebody once that had that situation arise just no <laughs> what what is the believer's role in this parable what 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 is what are these parables calling us to do well, as we saw last week we're to do what Jesus says and let him build the kingdom we're to do what Jesus says and let him build the kingdom we're to take up our cross and follow him and, and Jesus doesn't tell us to go and be successful, to build big churches, to become attractive to the world. That is not it, what he has told us to do. He tells us to be faithful and obedient. That's what he's called us to be, faithful and obedient. The, the kingdom of Christ does something that earthly kingdoms do, but without the oppression. The birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The birds of the air, I mean, you have the wild animals, and then you have the birds of the air. They're the little people. They're the neglected folks. They're the small ones in the kingdom. But, th but here, in, in, in Matthew's gospel, we might say the birds of the air are the poor, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for justice. J just as the other parables from the Old Testament about trees, in, in those, those birds found shade, protection, food, and the branches of those empires... In this case, the, the, it's the empire of heaven that they find it, but without the oppression that comes along with it. See, it's not the empire, again, that reaches to the heavens in order to touch it, but the empire that comes down from the heavens to bring peace and justice. And then we have this leaven parable that's in verse 33. The, the, the leaven parable is ultimately the same parable as the mustard seed parable. In other words, two parables that essentially say the same thing. Uh, it, too, is about... The hidden work of the kingdom that is pervasive, but not visible. Uh, its effect can go unnoticed until the end. That's the point of the leaven parable. What do you do with leaven? You put it in, you mix it up. You don't see the leaven. But when it's all said and done, you come back, you, whoa, you take off the cover. What's happened? It has raised. It has raised. Like Pharaoh's dreams. Remember when... Joseph is brought before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh relates these two dreams that he had, and one's about cows, and the other one's about corn stalks, and the fat cows and the skinny cows, and the you know, seven of each, and the, fat, uh, the, the healthy stalks and the, the dwindly drying out stalks uh, of corn, and then the one eats the other. What did, what did Joseph say? These two dreams are one, but that is so that you'd know the certainty which with this has been determined. Right, so, so why do we have these two parables that are essentially the same parable thrown together between the first parable and its explanation? Jesus is putting great emphasis on the hidden nature of the kingdom, the kingdom's activity. Like, like the mustard seed kingdom that 
provides for birds, the lowly ones, so too the final outcome of the leavened loaf is that it will feed many. I mean, it's a huge amount. There's enough bread there for 100 people to eat. 60 pounds of flour. Now let's turn to our third heading, hidden until harvest. Hidden until harvest. And this leads us to the explanation of the first parable. Verse 37, he answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Jesus lays out the cast for us. And there's a surprise or two nestled in there. Jesus, no surprise anyway to me, is the one who sowed the seed. He's the master of the house. He's the one who owns this estate. Not a big surprise. That the field is the world. Now, it's important to note that because this is not a parable about uh, membership in the church. It's about the presence of the church in the world. Now, Because the church is in the world, it doesn't mean it doesn't have anything to say about the first one. But that's not what it is about. But then there's you. If you're a Christian, if you follow Christ, you're one of the cast. You're one of the members of the cast. Note, you are the seeds. Now, maybe you didn't expect to be a seed. But you're a seed. You're here. In the parable of the farmer... Above, the foolish farmer last week, parable of the sower. The seeds are the message. Now, in this parable, the seeds are those who are literally sons of the kingdom or children of the kingdom. Now, that's interesting because Matthew has brought up sons of the kingdom before, children of the kingdom before. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 44 and 45, he makes the connection between being sons of the Father and those who love their enemies just as the Father is kind to those who are his enemies. So the sons of the kingdom are those living out the message, putting it into practice, living out their Father's will, if you will. They are the seeds. So you have, in the first, the, the parable of the sower, the, the, the seeds are the message. In the parable uh, here of, of the wheat and the weeds or the wheat and the darnel, it's the, the, the seeds are those who live out the message, those who put it into practice. <clears throat> why, do we, why do we put it into practice? We, we put it into practice not in order to become sons, We put it into practice because we are sons or children, sons and daughters of the the Father would have been understood there. More specifically, the the, the darnel are the sons or the children of the evil one. So now we have sons of the Father, sons or children of the evil one, who is the enemy. See that in verse 38. And again, 
Anything that causes sin, there's plenty of things that cause people to sin, and the workers of lawlessness is also what these weeds are. So they're pulled out. Workers of lawlessness is literally, I think, I think um, what does it say there? Uh, uh, sorry, I'm looking back up. Uh, those who do evil in, in the NIV. Those who do evil is literally workers of lawlessness. And that's, I think it's a, a, a vivid word. Because workers of lawlessness, are, lawlessness aren't really, I mean, we, we tend to read that as kind of flattening it out. All the unbelievers. Well, on one level, that's true, right? But the Bible isn't speaking flat here. Okay, it's not just all the unbelievers. At one level, yes, but, but what's specifically being mentioned here are not the heathen, but those who the prophets have called out, those with the law of God, but they did not put it into practice. They did not practice the, the justice and mercy that was intended by God's law, which has been an emphasis throughout Matthew's gospel. If you had understood what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The contrast is not believers and everyone else. It is the active agents of the kingdom versus the active agents of the evil one. In this case, some Pharisees and teachers of the law are particularly in mind. These are those who are posing as agents of God's kingdom, who live according to the ways of the evil one, the oppressive ways of the world's kingdoms. The evil one is the spirit behind the powers of the age, the spirit behind the emperors. And Isaiah and Ezekiel use language that helps us understand that. That's what's going on behind the oppressive kingdoms of the world. Now, it, it might be hard to discern the difference between the wheat and the darnel in the world. The empires of the world and the kingdom of Christ both claim to provide shade for the animals of the field, uh, or as it were, in this case, the birds of the air. But, but they are very different at the core. The ways they operate are very different. You, the sons of the king, sons of, of the, the kingdom, children of the kingdom, you are the seeds that are buried in the ground. Let me put that in another way. Doing what Jesus says is a lot like being buried in the ground and hidden. Uh, that was motivational, wasn't it? <laughs> I thought I was supposed to be motivated to do that. Well, you got to lay it out. Doing what Jesus says is a lot like being buried in the ground and hidden. And believe me, when we set out to do what Jesus says, oftentimes that's how it will feel. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes the work that his team does as burying seed. Seed that is them. <laughs> when the seed, when, when, we, when we sow, he says, it is our perishing bodies, but they'll be raised imperishable. When we sow, it, we're dishonored in the world, but we'll be raised in glory. We sow in apparent weakness, but we'll be raised in power. You see, like the parable, Paul jumps from the seed hidden to the end glory. He doesn't talk about the in-between. The resurrection, the end glory. The harvest is the end of the age. Once again, there's a fast forward to the harvest. You see, we, we tend to want rewards now. It's like, well, wait, why'd you fast forward to the harvest? I want to know what you're going to do before that. That's kind of... 
where we want to go. And, and Matthew will address that to some degree later in his gospel, but right now, what, what, what we need to see is that, that the kingdom is not about now rewards. We have no guarantee of now rewards. We do have guarantee of rewards, but not necessarily now rewards. The kingdom of God is not about your best life now. It's about your best life then, after the harvest, or at the harvest and beyond. Believers often embrace the fallacy that worldly success, you know, bigger is better. If, 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 you've, if, if you're successful in the eyes of the world, you must be doing God's will. That, that somehow it's a sign of God's blessing. It, it, it looks like the real thing, but may in fact prove to be darnal in the end. The work of the evil one. On the other hand, sometimes people look at the church that by worldly measures, well, it's not successful. And they look at the church and they kind of wonder, like, is this it? Is that, is, that, is that it? Others, well, they discover the church. They see something that others don't see. They realize what God is at work doing, and it's hiddenness. So the theme of hiddenness is essential to understanding how the sons of the kingdom are to function and operate, for we are the seed buried. We are hidden in our lives. And that leads us to the fourth heading, happy abandoned. Read with me in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, once again, Jesus nestles two micro parables, if you will, between things. This time between the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the darnel. That ends with a focus on harvest. And another parable about the harvest, the great in, or great ingathering. Between them, these two micro parables that once again have essentially the same meaning. Which puts an emphasis on how important it is to understand. These are to understanding the, the larger parable that's going on. The larger parables in this case. In both of these micro parables, that of the treasure hidden in the field and that of the pearl of great price. The main character finds something of great value. In both of these, the main character sells everything they have to buy what they found. The minor difference is that in the first, the person who finds the treasure in the field is the only one who knows the real value of the field he is buying. He still has to sell everything he has, but he's the only one aware. It did cost him everything he has. In the second, the merchant is not the only one aware of the great value. Everyone knows that he's paying a high price because it's a pearl of great price. What are we to make of these parables sitting here in between again? Well, first, it, it wasn't uncommon in that day for people to bury treasures in a field. Uh, somewhat like people you hear kind of uh, people putting money in their mattress, stocking it away. Don't trust the banks, right? So you got to stock money. So, so oftentimes uh, in order, uh, maybe an invading army would come and pillage, and so they want their treasure to remain or, or some other 
kind of thing, the, the, the government coming in, using it for, you know, for taxes, just confiscating things. They would bury valuables, uh, a lot of valuables in a field. And then, of course, if the person was killed in that raid or, or they died of some other cause, uh, it, it's there. And they didn't just go around broadcasting where they had buried their wealth. For obvious reasons. And so now whoever is the heir of this property might be selling it. They have some great need. They've got to sell their property. They're not aware of what's in the field. They're selling the property. When somebody comes along, obviously somebody, maybe they're not a person of means because it takes everything they have to get it, right? And they buy the field because they, they discover that whatever they're doing, they're digging up for a tree. They might be the servant on the field. And they discover this treasure. And it's kind of quickly, yeah, let's just put that, cover that right over. And then, hey, I'd like to buy the field. <laughs> and evidently not too suspicious. And, and, and so they go sell everything they have. They come up with the money. And, you know, it's, it's like if, if you discovered that the Powerball winning ticket was buried in the field and it was going to cost you, you know, 100000 to buy it, well, you'd probably figure out a way to come up with the 100000 right? Beg, bar, and steal because you know, right? When, so... It's, it's going to be bought. Often, we are the only ones who know the value of the kingdom. Others look at the way we, we live our lives, get, giving up everything we have. They just look at it as stupid. And they often don't even understand or know the price that we pay. It's hidden from them. Now, there are those in the know, those who understand the value of the kingdom... And that's the believer, we, right? We, we are encouraged along the way. We, we have a happy abandon about us. It's like, well, yeah, it's costing me everything, but look what I'm getting. <laughs> like, who cares that it's costing me everything? <laughs> look what I'm getting. It's not like, oh, I've got to do what Jesus said. No, it's like, I get to do what Jesus said. Look at what we gain. Look at, look at everything involved. This is amazing. Happy abandon. We're sons of the king. Sometimes others may well understand the value of what we're pursuing. They themselves just aren't interested in selling everything to buy it. That's just too radical. I mean, I know that there's a lot of promises there, but that's just too radical. Listen. Either way, the reward of the kingdom is not to be expected in this life. This life is the time when we are selling everything we have to buy it, as it were. We are, we are laying down. We are giving up. We are laying up, as it's put earlier in Matthew's gospel, laying up treasure in heaven. It's at the harvest when the value of what we've pursued is really going to be made plain. But we have joy. Why do we have joy? We have joy because we know. We know something that others don't know. We know the value of the kingdom. And that leads us to the fifth and final heading, harvest in a heap of fish. Read with me in in verse 47 again. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the, uh, the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in the baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Once again, we have this image of a great ingathering. Before it was an ingathering of the wheat and the harvest. Now it's an ingathering of fish. 
Above, it was the angels going out to the harvest or to gather the wheat and the, the darnel, only to separate them and send each to their destination. Now it's a giant dragnet, likely pulled between two boats. I mean, it, it's much like what you hear about on, like, tuna boats, where they go out and they this massive net, and they catch, well, they catch more than the tuna they want, right? That's why you can buy tuna that is, you know, pole cod or, you know, uh, uh, sustainably friendly, you know, that kind of thing. Why? Because this other, well, it's destroying a lot along the way. A lot of things are dying in the mix. Like, we are not interested in those. But they're caught anyway. It's that kind of net. Don't worry, it's only a parable. We're not killing tuna. Just, or dolphins, as the case may be. We're not killing uh, porpoises. No, no porpoises harmed in the telling of this parable. Um, the, the angels separate the wicked from the, from the middle of the just. This is how it really reads. It's right from the middle of the just. You know, the, they pull them out of the middle of the just. And, and again, we should understand... These, the, the just to be true agents of the king the, versus the pseudo-agents of the king who are practicing injustice. How do we know what it means to be just? Who are those who are workers of lawlessness? How can we ever live up to these demands, if you will, to the, the demands that, that the, of the Sermon on the Mount? Well... Last week we looked at something, and I want to close out with this key thought because it's, it's vital that we capture this element. Last week we, we looked briefly at three key times that we see Jesus sitting down in Matthew's gospel. There's, there's technically four. Two of them uh, are similar, but there's, there's four times Jesus sits down in Matthew's uh, gospel. The first, when he taught the Sermon on the Mount. The second, at the beginning of chapter 13, it, we're told twice that he sits down. In the space of one sentence, just twice, he, he sat down for emphasis, to draw our attention to it, so that we go, oh, I wonder, what, is that important? You know, and, and, and yes. And what is, what is that parable of the sower about? It, it's about how we hear and respond to the message about the kingdom, which is the Sermon on the Mount. So, so, so we have sitting to teach the Sermon on the Mount, sitting to hear a parable about how we respond to it. Are we putting it into practice? And then the, the next two are both about when he will sit to judge, and the one gives us a picture of the judgment seat of Christ. It's the only picture of the judgment seat of Christ we have in the whole Bible. And it might surprise you what we see there is what we, what we find when, when we look at that, but there we do find that Jesus, in effect, when he says... To one group, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. You didn't give me something to drink when I was thirsty. You didn't clothe me when I was naked. He's saying, you didn't do that for me. But to the other, he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. I think we could, in some way, we wouldn't be certainly playing loose with the Scripture to say that there's an implication that those are the ones who put into practice the Sermon on the Mount because the Sermon on the Mount begins with, what do we do for the little ones? Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. There's a theme that connects those things, the judgment and the first message of the kingdom together. Now one might object, understandably, saying, I thought faith alone was all that is necessary for salvation. You're saying that we're going to be judged by, what, by whether or not we do what Jesus says. That's a good question. It's, a, it's an important question. So 
listen carefully for a couple of moments. However helpful it might be in an evangelistic conversation, I know this is often used, and it might be helpful uh, to, to ask somebody, when, if you were to die and go to heaven, and Jesus were to ask you why he should let you into heaven, how would you answer? And of course, we're looking for what? Well, if they say, well, I've been good, right? We know they don't have it right. And if they say, because I've trusted in you, I've believed in you, oh, they've got it. Well, as helpful as that might be, I've got bad news for you. It ain't going to happen when you get to heaven. That conversation will not take place. Okay? It's great. It's, it's a great tool. It's not going to happen. It's a fiction as far as that goes. Um, in fact, uh, Matthew 25 gives us the only picture we have of what that day will look like, and it looks quite contrary to that. Rather, what we do or don't do for the least of the kingdom is the guideline. Why? I'll tell you why I think it is. That is an objective answer to the question of whether or not you believe in Jesus. See, we, we tend to put those things so opposite that the twain shall never mix. But the reality is that if I trust Jesus, the natural outcome is I'm going to start doing what he said. Because if I don't do what he said, I don't trust him. I don't believe him. It's not just believing certain things about a person. You know, when a parent says to a child that's wrestling with something, hey, do you, do you trust me? I'm, I'm trying to give you some instruction. I know it doesn't seem right, but do you trust me? They're not asking, do, do you believe certain things about me that I am, you know, your, your, your father, that I had something to do with why you exist? All that might be true. <laughs> They're asking a different question. And our belief in Jesus is reflected by what we do. Your works don't merit you anything, but they do reveal your faith. Your works don't merit you anything, but they do reveal your faith. At the harvest, fruit will not make you a good tree, but being a good tree will have brought forth fruit. It's important to see that distinction. We must realize, too, that those who are judged as giving Jesus food when he was hungry, visiting him when he was in prison, etc., etc., doing for the least, those that did those things, remember how they responded? Lord, when did we do that? When did we do that? What are you talking about? They weren't focused on meriting something. They were focused on trusting Jesus and doing what he said because it takes trust, a lot of it, to do what he said. And, and so, they weren't even in believing. What, what are you talking about? They had to be pointed out to them that they did these things. Many Christians are prone to self-condemnation um, as some sort of self-appointed fruit inspectors. But listen, Jesus is the only proper fruit inspector. He is the one who sees the heart. There's a simple way, a, a, a picture, if you're familiar with the the book of Exodus. I mean, you, most of us are at least familiar with the the um, uh, story of Joseph, from whether it's from Disney or you got the whole story of Moses, uh, uh, um, uh, Charlton Heston, the 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 what is that? The Ten Commandments. But they've got well, Prince of Egypt. That's the one that that Disney did, right? Prince of Egypt. What's that? DreamWorks. Thank you. Don't give credit to where credit is due. Um, <laughs> very important. 
But what, all of those stop where? They all stop basically when they get to the Red Sea and cross it. None of them go on to the whole larger half, second half, which is actually a little longer, uh, which is they're at Mount Sinai. The whole time is basically at Mount Sinai learning the law of God. But th- th- that creates a picture for us when we see the book of Exodus. You see, God did not, he could have, he, he could have met Moses in the burning bush in chapter 3 of the book of Exodus and said, Moses, here's some stone tablets, bring them back to Egypt, give them to the people and tell them when they get this all accomplished, then I'm going to set them free and they will be slaves no longer. But he didn't do that. And it wasn't because stone tablets are heavy. Okay. Rather, what he did is he sent Moses back as a deliverer to rescue them and save them and keep completely render their, their, their past slavery gone. They are no longer slaves. They are now God's people. He sets them free. They go through the, as what Paul calls the waters of baptism, to go through the Red Sea, come out the other side. They are brand new. And then he says, I've brought you to myself. They get to Mount Sinai. He says, I've brought you to myself to teach you how to be a, 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 a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And then the rest of the book is basically teaching them how to dwell in the presence of God, how to live in his presence, and how to live with one another. They aren't taught those things so that they can become the people of God. They are taught those things because they are the people of God. The Sermon on the Mount won't make us the people of uh, the disciples of Jesus, but we do the things in the Sermon on the Mount because we are the disciples of Jesus. Amen? Well, I want to close with a, a quotation from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. A king who dies on the cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. Only those who understand the profound paradox of the cross can also understand the whole meaning of Jesus' assertion, my kingdom is not from this world. See, these texts, these parables are about what it's like to be doing the kingdom work of Jesus. And we have to understand the nature of God, the foolishness of the cross that is the wisdom of God, the foolishness of hiddenness that is the wisdom of God. And so that's fundamentally what these are about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of Scripture, the truths that they speak to our hearts, the reality of what you have done in rescuing us, bringing us through the water, and then bringing us to yourself and teaching us your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.